with that, I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we are sort of in between series right now, and we are taking a short series just in one chapter of the book of Romans, and we come today to verses 9 to 13 of Romans 12, and this text, I think, is very appropriate for us as we begin a new year. There are several admonitions here that, um, that we could um, cling to, that we can seek to put into practice as we enter a new year. As you know, a new year is a good time for reflection, reflection on the past year for God's incredible mercies to you and how he has been faithful to you again and again, and that should well up to a grateful spirit. But then also looking forward, what does God have for me in the coming year? How will God use me to glorify him in the coming year? Will God use me to share Christ with someone and ultimately for that person to come to faith? That is exciting things and things that we should be praying about. Good time for reflection. What type of goals should you set? I was reading a post by a Christian counselor that said it's ironic. Some of the New New Year's resolutions are really moral reformations from sins, aren't they? (laughs) I want to stop smoking. I want to, you know, this and that, this and that. Um, But what kind of things should we have before us? I'd remind you of the first catechism question, what is the chief end of man? And I've already sort of let this out of the bag. And what is that? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What better resolution is there than that, brethren, than to want to glorify God with every fiber of your being? These are the types of goals we should have. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 19 years old, sat down and penned some resolutions. Uh, he wrote 70 of them, and, but the first 21 he, he wrote in one sitting. And I'd encourage you to read those, but here are just two, the fifth and the sixth. Resolved never to lose a moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. What does that say to our 21st century Americanism, wasting of time? The, second, or the sixth one, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. You know, these are, those are good uh, resolutions. Um, now, I think there should be resolutions also, well, I won't call it that, but also for a church. How, what can we think about? And from our text today, we're going to see something about genuine brotherly love and how we show that to one another and how we should resolve to put these admonitions and exhortations into practice in the coming year and every year onwards. How do we treat one another? Do we really display brotherly love for one another? In what ways can we prove that? In what ways is that demonstrated? Do we need each other? Yes, we do. We need each other. The Bible knows nothing of solo Christianity where you just get by on your own without the support of brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, Paul lists several moral exhortations beginning in verse 9 to the end of the chapter, and he begins with love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Love is important, isn't it? That sums up the whole love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It summarizes the whole law. Paul says in the next chapter, 13.8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has what? Fulfilled the law. So love is important. 
We are the family of God. We're fellow children of God. If you're in Christ, if you've savingly embraced Him, and we must be devoted to one another. Well, these exhortations that we'll be looking at are really just verses 9 to 13. But I wanted to just bring us up to speed in regards to the context. You'll remember in verse 1, we looked at when he says, By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. How do we do that? Our greatest motivation is to have an accurate view and appreciation for all that God has done for us. That's chapters 1 to 11. It's all the doctrinal foundation for the pastoral exhortations that Paul gives the church in Rome. All of that exposition, all of that doctrine, all of what God has done for us, justifying us, sanctifying us, growing us, all of those things, adopting us into the family of God, that's the motivation that we now present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. He says it's your reasonable spiritual service of worship, rendering wholehearted devotion is the only logical and reasonable worship of God. He says that we're to renew our mind, that we've been transformed. And then last time we looked at verses 3 to 8 in a very important section there that among all redeemed Christians, we're such a diverse people. You can look around in this room and see different races, different ages, and all of that. We're diverse in so many ways, but yet each one has a spiritual gift. Each one has been given the measure of a spiritual gift, and we're to use that for the edification of the church not the edification of ourselves. In verse 3, he says, give a sober self-assessment. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. So verse 3 sort of sets the preliminary remarks there. Verse 4 and 5, he uses that great word picture, just as our personal bodies have different members and different functions. My thumb doesn't do the same thing that my pinky does, and there's different functions. So too, in the church of God, we're a diverse people, but we all have different functions in serving the Lord. We've been gifted in different ways. Paul lists seven gifts here. They're not offices. They're not listed in any particular order, but just to demonstrate the variety of spiritual gifts. And I broke them down into speaking type gifts and serving type gifts. Well, with that, let's come to our text today. Follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Let's go to the Lord and ask his help one more time. Would you bow with me? Our Father and our God, we do come before you now and we pray, O God, that you would meet with us during this time. We pray, O Lord, that you would be pleased to soften hearts and open ears, that you would even enable the weak one that is speaking to speak clearly from your word. Lord, we pray that you would grant the grace and determination to grow in these areas. And we know that that will not come about unless we see and appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us, afresh and anew. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the one that has demonstrated such love to us. And, Lord, for some, 
whose eyes may be open, but their minds are wandering. Remove distractions, O Lord. Meet with us. Do good this hour, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The title is simply, Be Devoted to One Another in Love, taken right from the text, really. And as we come today to the series of expositions, exhortations from Paul, some of these can be difficult. Loving one another, being devoted to one another, giving preference to one another in honor, sharing with those in need, practicing hospitality. All of these types of things can what? They can make us susceptible to becoming hurt. Anytime you open yourself up to a friend and you start sharing some of your struggles and you start sharing things on a confident level, what happens is you're running the risk that if they turn on you, you're going to be hurt. Why do you think we live the way we do in this 21st century where some of us haven't talked to our neighbors for weeks or months at a time? We're closed in, we're protecting ourselves, but in the church of Christ, we're to open ourselves up and to be vulnerable. When we open our hearts and our homes and even our very selves up, it can be risky as it can make us vulnerable. But Paul would say that's exactly what he wants Christians to do. It's the very mandate that he's setting forth here. And just as God has designed, as I said, in those spiritual gifts, he's designed the context of the church for the working out of those gifts and the using of those gifts. So too, these admonitions really find their root from within the church, though they go beyond the church walls in helping and in serving and providing and so forth. But it really is born out of the context of the local church. Now, the structure of this text is really fascinating in the Greek. It really has, it's, there's, it's, The love without hypocrisy, one word, as the heading, and then several phrases, another 12 phrases, all modifying that. And so I'm actually going to put all of verse 9 in one point, and then the rest of it in the second point. If you have an outline in your bulletin, you'll see how I broke that down. And there's some of these... um, participle phrases that I've, there were trilogies, verses 11 and verses 12, that I've lumped into one point, but really structurally, they're actually just a series of short phrases for us, um, all with participles in it. So, for, that's for the grammarians. So, first of all, love must be genuine. Secondly, love must be practiced towards the brethren. So, let's look at this first point first. Don't be insincere in your love to others. He gives the article here. The, the article is in front of agape, and this is agape love, which is, which is a pure and a sincere love. And so it has the force of let your love be without hypocrisy. That's the force of it. And without hypocrisy means what? Without ulterior motives. Without trying to think, well, I'll give if I can get back something, right? We're not to think like that. We're to love without hypocrisy. Love to God and love to other Christians is to be sincere and genuine. Hypocrisy is altogether reprehensible, even to the world, isn't it? When the world sees someone act a hypocrite, usually they're pointing to a Christian <laughs> because they're not a Christian. But, oh, see, oh, you know, there's that guy's just, he's being one way here and another way here. You see it in the schools, don't you? High schoolers, junior highs, you see kids, colleges. They're one way with one group of friends, a completely different mask, if you will, with another set. And actually, the word actually was born out of the first century. It meant to play out. It meant to hold up the mask. And so holding up the mask to disguise yourself and then another mask, playing an acting part in life. Jesus, of course, was 
vehement towards the Pharisees because he saw their hypocrisy. He spoke with such strong words. Read Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. The Pharisees, of course, as you know, appeared fine on the outside, right? But what did Jesus say? Inwardly, they're full of dead men's bones. Hypocrisy disgusted our Lord. And our Christian love is not to be like that. In 1 John, he says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's the way our love is to be. The Christian's loving behavior should not be acting a part or wearing a mask, but it's really an authentic expression of what is set forth here of having a renewed mind, a transformed life. It's the natural outflow of those things. One man said, sadly, much of what masquerades as love in the Christian community is laced with the arsenic of hypocrisy. Isn't that true? So much superficial hypocritical love out there. Well, what does hypocritical love look like? This is not exhaustive, just to mention a few things to get you thinking. What about acting as though you love and you care for someone when really you're just trying to get something from them? Okay, that's a, that's a hypocritical type of love. And as I already referenced it, you kids also at school, you might be one way with one group of friends and another way with another group. Hypocritical love hides hatred. It hates on the inside, but puts on a facade of love on the outside. And we have a perfect example of that in the Holy Scriptures. And who is it? Judas. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss of affection. Insincere, being tainted with tainted motives to get something. These are the type that, that Paul is speaking against. This is the type of hypocrisy that Paul is speaking up against. Let love be without hypocrisy. And then he goes on and talks about this antithesis between evil and good. The transformed Christian can now discern the difference between what is evil and what is good. He goes on and he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. We are to hate anything evil. See, love doesn't just overlook evil. You know, some say, well, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. I'll just overlook the fact that there's this affair going on or something like that. No, you're to hate it. If the marriage covenant is being violated, you are to hate even as God hates. A poor, it's a strong word. It means to hate or to, to disdain. And we're to a poor evil Really, what the Apostle is calling us to, and this is really the fruit of a transformed life, is you begin to love the things God loves and you hate the things God hates. In Proverbs 6, it says, But there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness that utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Well, the test for you is do you, how do you handle things when you see things going on around you? Are you grieved when you hear the Lord's name being taken in vain in your neighborhood, in the workplace, on a movie or something? Are you grieved at that? 
Are you repulsed when you look around and you see the manifestation of wickedness that is just given over by God so much in this world? When you see the various things going on, the sexual perversion, the homosexual marriage, religious apostasy, idolatry, the cults getting the upper hand while those who faithfully preach the word struggle along, exploitation of children, the persecuted church being persecuted because they're taking the word to places that are dangerous. Are you grieved for these things? Jude says, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So if we have a sincere love for others, we will help keep them from evil. And sometimes this manifests itself in one of many places in the home. When you know how to protect your children, there are certain things that we do not allow our children to do. There are certain guidelines that we set forth for their own good for example, and you children need to submit to your parents when they set these down because it's for your good. We want to be careful not to put stumbling blocks in front of the brethren in any way, shape, or form. Young people, you need to be careful of what your friends might be leading you into because maybe they don't fear the Lord. Maybe they know nothing of the Lord, and yet they're trying to entice you and to to get you to come along into this wickedness, wicked activity of some sort. True love does not lead others into sin. So really what Paul is saying here, <clears throat> if you connect them together, abhor whatever is evil, cling to whatever is good. And that brings us to the next phrase here. Stay glued to that which is good. The word that he uses here for cling is the word that's to glue together, to join together. It's a very strong word. It can mean to, to hold fast to that which is good. It's in the middle voice. It probably has more the idea of stay extremely close to it. And our affection for good is illustrated by the bond of marriage where Jesus uses the very same word in Matthew chapter 19 when he says, a man shall leave his uh, mother and father and be joined to his wife, to be glued to his wife or to cleave, uh, depending on your translation. That's the same word there. So when you have been transformed by a supernatural work of salvation, now you know what is good and you seek after it. And anything evil, anything that would seek to weigh you down, you repudiate and you cast off. Paul says at the end of 1 Thessalonians, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. So what does this look like? Well, God delights in his law. The moral law given that on the, uh, um, Mount Sinai, the law that was set forth, the unchanging standard of righteousness of God, he delights in his law. What does it say of the godly man in Psalm 1? It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's what it'll mean. So the result for us is that Christian disciplines, they're not a burden now. They're a delight. They're a delight to arise and to go on your knees and to seek God and to see Christ afresh through the mind of faith, through the eyes of faith, and commune with Him and to read His Word. Prayer, reading the Bible is now a delight. Meditating on Jesus and His work and all that He has accomplished for you is a delight. It's not a burden for those that are in Christ. 
well. So we've seen something of genuine love or a love without hypocrisy. Secondly, verses 10 to 13, love must be practiced towards the brethren. And these are the last 10 of the 12 participle phrases here. And it's really, as I said, an overflow of Romans 1 and 2, being living sacrifices for God. It's a natural overflow. It lists our duties to one another, and it's really the very fruit of salvation. If you've been saved by grace, and you've been sensed the love of God, He's been shed abroad in our hearts, you will in turn love His people, and you will serve them. Well, first of all, in verse 10, he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now, this word devoted is an interesting word. It occurs only here in the, uh, in the Greek New Testament. Um, in classical Greek, back before um, the New Testament times, it meant a mutual love or a tender affection of parents and children. I think the King James still has tender affection there for devoted. As we kind of try to unpack this a little bit, he mentions be devoted or to have tender affection to one another in brotherly love. Actually, the root philo is still in this word here, even though it occurs only here. So he's really mentioning the root love two times in this one phrase. So I think the idea is here, it's speaking of a natural love of the kindred. So it was in the immediate family context in classical Greek, but for us, those who have been adopted into the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's to have this tender affection one for another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It it speaks of, of Christians being bound by a family tie. So members of the family of God should do everything in their power to remain fully devoted to one another with affection, realizing that they've all been adopted by God, realizing that they're all a part and a member of the, of the church which Christ has purchased with his own blood. Well, families, regular families, need to spend time together. We hear, of, oh, this such and such was divorced because mom had three jobs, dad was never home, and the kids were in daycare all the time or whatever. Just as families need to spend time together to be strong, so too the church of Christ and all of its members needs to spend time together to be strong. You know, attending Sunday morning worship only, and that's it, is not really enough time to build meaningful relationships and friendships. We need to take advantage of the other, other services during the Lord's Day, the prayer meeting, Lord's Supper service, Sunday school, midweek Bible studies, um, men's breakfast, which we have one coming up this Saturday here at the church. All of these other opportunities for that informal fellowship by which we might grow close to one another, that we might increase our love and affection for one another, those are the kinds of things we need to redeem. Church picnics, informal times of just getting together with other families. Hospitality, as we'll see down later in our text. need to take advantage of these things. We are to be loyal to one another. Dedicated for Christ's sake. Irrespective of race. Irrespective of, of economic standing or social differences. We are to be dedicated and devoted to one another for Christ's sake. If we're in Christ. William Hendrickson says in his commentary, 
There is a sense, in, a sense in which believers should love everybody, including those who hate and persecute them. He'll say that down in verse 14. We'll see that next week. But tender brotherly affection, implying intimacy, understanding, spiritual unity, is reserved for the inner circle. Christians have the right to discriminate between those who hate God and those who love him. Galatians 6, Paul brings out the same idea. Let us do good to all people. Yes and amen, let us do good. But what does he say? Especially those of the household of faith. So let's drive this home a little bit. Being in a family, just like your family, maybe this evening or last night, there's going to be conflict. There's conflicts in family. There's conflicts in marital relationships. There's conflicts with different children and so forth, there's going to be conflict, and so too in the church, there is going to be some conflict. We're all not going to agree on absolutely every single circumstance and every single thing eye to eye. In the family of God, sometimes you're going to get your feelings hurt. Sometimes there's going to be disagreements. Maybe the style of music. Maybe you were thinking, why do we have three choruses in a row at the beginning of the service and only one hymn? Why can we have three hymns in one court? Whatever the thing. But you can't. Every time something happens that doesn't go exactly the way you think it should, you shouldn't run away from the church. You need to be committed to the church for Christ's sake and to be devoted to one another. There's biblical ways of handling conflict when there's actually conflict in relationships. And that's going to come in the next section as well. Next week, we'll unpack that more then. But the strength of the church is really it's built on the foundation of Christ as the cornerstone right but then it's individual men and women who have been adopted into the family of God and it's those close relationships of working together within the leadership the elders and the deacons those close relationships within the membership all those relationships and 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 then that gives us strength as we would do these outreach efforts as we would serve in various ministries because we're united we're locked arm in arm sort of, so that we have strength. Those close relationships provide an opportunity for bearing burdens, for weeping with those that weep, rejoicing with those that rejoice. We'll see that later as well, later in this chapter. Bearing one another's burdens, meeting needs. This is why we believe church membership is so important. It is hard to obey some of these commands, some of these exhortations here, if you're not a part of a church. If you're not a part of a church, how can you fully implement this? Well, my brother in Texas is a Christian, so I do this and that, and I have two friends down the street or something. No, God has ordained the context of the church for the outworking of these things, for the using of our spiritual gifts, for the edification of the church, and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who purchased the church with his own blood. Determine this year to invest in building relationships. Determine this year to get to know other brothers and sisters in Christ, that you might help bear their burdens, that they might help bear your burdens, that you would grow close together, united together, supporting one another. And get below the surface. Try to get below the surface. Sometimes that's hard, right? On a Sunday morning, it's hard to get really below the surface when we're only together for a short amount of time. That's why it's so important to have these other opportunities 
for fellowship and getting together. Well, like a two-sided coin that has content on both sides, the second half of verse 10 is equally as important and really complementary to this. And it says, give preference to one another in honor. Eagerly honor the brethren. This word give preference is a fascinating word. Uh, the ESV has outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo, the, outdo one another. It's a contest. It literally means go before as a guide. Go before as a guide showing honor to others. First Peter 2, Peter writes, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You see, humility is an essential ingredient to genuine love. It reminds me of verse 3 where he says, Do not think more highly of, of yourself than you ought to think. Give a sober self-assessment of who you are. Humility is essential to true love. Philippians 2.3, Paul clearly says, Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Did you know, even today, right now, there are those that have shown devotion and honor to you? Every Lord's Day here at Grace Bible Church, San Diego, there are those that have shown honor to you, that have been devoted to you. You see, all the setup that takes place here doesn't just happen. There's people here 45 minutes before the worship service starts, helping to set up, making the big back table look nice, and putting out the hymnals and the music and and all of that, there's a lot to do to set up. There's the preparation of the worship leaders, putting together the service. There's the musicians practicing, the pianist, all of these things. The nice, wonderful snacks that we'll enjoy in a short bit, if, if I wrap it up here, uh, in the next room, have been prepared by somebody for you, showing you honor. Right now, there's someone in the nursery watching little ones, changing diapers, giving snacks, wiping up spills. What? For you, so that you could enjoy the worship service, showing you honor. And that's not to mention throughout the week, all of the things that take place with a healthy body life. Well, let's hasten on to verse 11. Verse 11, he says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. To put it together in one sentence... The intent of the verse is to serve the Lord with diligence and zeal. See where he says in verse 11, not lagging behind. That word means to be lazy and slothful. I know Americans know nothing of that word, right? No, we do, right? To be lazy and slothful. He says, no, not, it's with the negative, not being slothful in diligence, but to be fervent in spirit. What does the word fervent mean? be boiling hot, to have an an ardent burning. The opposite of fervent is to be cold and unemotional. That's the opposite. John Murray, in his great commentary, says, Serving the Lord has a dual purpose of stirring up from sloth and regulating zeal. Right? There's a zeal without knowledge, right, that the that the Israelites had. There's sometimes a zeal that goes Onward, anything goes in some Pentecostal churches, for example, and that kind of thing. But no, we need to have it regulated, but we also need to be stirred up from sloth. 
We're all sinners. We need a kick sometimes. Actually, you remember Apollos in Acts 18, it said of him, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. Apollos was fervent in spirit. And then he says to serve the Lord. Uh, same word at verse 7, if in service and you're serving and so forth, he comes back to it again here, um, serving the Lord. And what is your service to the Lord like? If you gave an assessment of 2009, for example, <laughs> is it lagging behind? Is it fervent? Is it zealous? Look at the gifts that are listed here. It's not exhaustive, as we said when we went through that, but it's, they're just a variety of gifts. Where do you fit in? Is there things to ask yourself? Well, verse 12, he moves on and he changes the theme a little bit here. He says, rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. So this trilogy here put together perseverance and tribulation, preserve in tribulation through hope and prayer. And, you know, if you just look at this and study it a little bit, rejoicing in hope, being devoted to prayer, is how I'm going to persevere in tribulation. Now, we can say that to the, the persecuted church, and actually, if somehow we could you know, get a testimony from someone who's been afflicted for years that have been persecuted at the hands of cruel persecutors, maybe they might say and testify to the truth of what Paul's saying. But it's hard for us to wrap our mind around it. it, it, it it's harder for the world to wrap their mind around it. They would say, that method of dealing with trouble is foolhardy. You have to fight back. Show them your strength. Or they're just going to take advantage of you. But see, the Christian's hope and joy today is founded on future hope. The Christian is rejoicing in hope. What does that mean, hope? It's a confident expectation of something that is yet future. And in this context, and in most contexts, of the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his children. In Romans 8, just a few chapters back, he says, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. You see that? Hope gives us a determination to endure trials. The Apostle Paul says it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And who are we to say that we're different? Somehow we're different. We don't need to endure that. It's through many tribulations. Think of the martyrs. You see, they're persecutors that, that came and, and, and t- tied them with chains to stakes and put all the wood and the hay all around them before lighting it. They could take their lives, their earthly lives, but they could never take their joy. That's why a reformer such as John Huss can sing as he's being roasted in the flames, Son of David, have mercy on me. Would we have such confidence? Would we have such joy? Would we find our delight in the Lord? Why? Because we look to another place, not this life. We look to heaven, the fulfillment of all of our hope, the fulfillment of all that He has provided for us. That joy in heaven when we see Him face to face. Nothing can beat it. In Romans 5, he also mentions this theme. He says, not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. What, Paul? Go see a doctor. He <laughs> says, no, we exalt in our tribulations. What? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, 
hope. Well, he ends this verse here, devoted to prayer. And it's a different word than the devoted in verse 10, which I've already unpacked for you. This one means to be steadfast or to be busily engaged in. Busily engaged in. God uses the prayers of his people to encourage them, to motivate them to press on. Prayer is the very lifeblood of the church. Again and again, you see the early church was committed and devoted to prayer. Acts 2, Acts 6, Acts 1, again and again. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. You see, hope is fueled by prayer. Because prayer realigns our focus on God. It realigns our focus on the Word that yes, it is true. And He has all of these promises for me. They're yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it fuels hope. John Murray says, the measure of perseverance and tribulation is the measure of our diligence in prayer. Prayer is the means ordained by God for the supply of grace sufficient. So brethren, let me ask you, are you steadfast in prayer? Are you busily engaged in prayer? Private prayers for the saints interceding for one another. The prayer meeting will hear some of the needs and cares of the church that we can take and we can go to the throne of grace and intercede, not only during our prayer meeting, but through the week. Prayer for the concerns of the church, not only our local expression, but the church at large. We, I emailed this to the church list, and we have some in the back. I'm going to pass them out during the prayer meeting. We have a new church list here, which hopefully will prove to be helpful of focusing on God first, and then your family, and then our church, and then the individual church families, and then outreach, and the lost, and then our nation. Just something to, to help as a guide, to help us to be devoted to prayer each and every day, to have the right concerns. I'd encourage you, pray with the church as the church prays. At prayer meeting, home fellowship groups, Bible studies, men's breakfast, there's always an opportunity for prayer at the end of those where we can share burdens and hold one another up in prayer. Be devoted to prayer. Well, lastly, Paul in verse 13 really says, he, he puts feet to the mandate of love. He's been, he's been speaking here, along here, but this is where the rubber meets the road, as it were. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. I was almost going to just break up that verse by itself on a separate sermon, but wanting to get started with Ephesians, where I'm just going to share an overview of it. We need to share with the saints who have need. The word need means those who are lacking anything that is needed of livelihood. The word contribute is from the same root, or the noun, actually, the root noun, Koinonia, which means fellowship and communion and sharing. But here it's the idea to take an interest in and to share. Meeting practical material needs like food and shelter and drink and those types of things. It might also have the idea of participating and entering in into difficulty with a brother or sister in Christ. Actually sharing those, the needs of the saints as well. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, instruct them to do good, be rich 
to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Are we a generous people? I want to say and qualify that I think GBC is to be commended in so many ways. Um, There are displays again and again of a manifestation of generosity and care and love for the brethren. If someone needs groceries, it's usually not, it's before the day is out that groceries are provided. If someone needs a ride, rides are provided. Helping our military wives while their husbands are deployed and all the various things of helping with watching the children or helping with cleaning the house or just being a friend and spending extra time, all of these things. Ministering to those that are unemployed or underemployed. Even church benevolence, ministering to the elderly, all of these things contributing to the needs of the saints. You are to be commended. We need to remember the parable of the Good Samaritan and not fall into being like the priest and the Levite who ran to the other side of the road when the man led blood there, laying there on the side of the road. We need to be running to help. Biblical Christianity knows nothing of that cold indifference that the Levite and the priest did in that story. Well, the second half here, simply practicing hospitality. You'll notice I phrased it, eagerly pursue hospitality. Don't wait for someone to call you. Uh, the, The hospitality literally means love of strangers, loving strangers. And it's a lot more than the idea of just a meal. A meal's nice. A meal's a step in the right direction. But hospitality during biblical times meant much more than that. Sometimes extended stays, often overnights, sharing everything with them that you have. And the, the word practicing here, you know, there, it's, it, it's not something that we, that, that we just do occasionally. Practice is not optional in the NFL, for example. You know, I, I think Philip Rivers is playing today um, at some point with the Chargers. He doesn't say, you know, just count me out for practice. I'll show up Sunday and, you know, and all of that. No, practice is mandatory. You must practice. And here Paul says practice. But it's more than that. The force of the word, it's so much stronger. It's dioko. And it means sometimes it's used to persecute, uh, to be persecuted. Uh, Paul uses it in Philippians 3.14. I press on towards the goal. So it actually means to run after and actively pursue. So much stronger than practice, isn't it? It's to run after and to pursue it's pursuing as if you're on a chase or a hunt for wild game through the, through the forest. You're pursuing. You're going after it. Aggressively seek after. And in the first century, there was an urgent need for the practice of biblical hospitality because the ends would often be ungodly or, or very expensive or, or unsafe even. And so Christians would provide hospitality. In Hebrews 13 Similar mandate, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Let me ask you, when was the last time you had a family from the church in your home? When's the last time that, you, that you've actually had, and I'm not talking about somebody that you're really good friends with, somebody that you don't know, that you have an opportunity to entertain, as it were, not complete strangers, but strangers, and to get to know and to build that bond of Christian friendship and enjoy fellowship. 
Peter in 4.9 of his, of his first letter says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And sometimes people say, Well, I guess we'll have them over. What if the kids make a mess? Uh, you know, and grumbling and all that. No, he wants us to do it cheerfully without complaint that we would look forward to it. In Matthew 25, in the commending of the, the righteous, the judgment of the wicked and the, and the commending of the righteous, it actually says, when I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. And you know the rest of it. You gave me, when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. And all of that, speaking of the righteous. One of the Puritans said, great boast in small roast makes unsavory mouths. So we're to, <laughs> to be generous when we actually have hospitality and everybody gets one taquito and one french fry and that's no. To be generous. <laughs> great post. All right, well, let's draw a final concluding application and be done. How are you doing with these exhortations? They can be overwhelming. The best of us can fail loving with a pure love, honoring others, serving the Lord with zeal, being devoted to prayer, meeting practical needs where the rubber meets the road. If you are lazy and dull, if you're lacking the love needed, To obey here, listen to me very carefully if you don't hear anything else. The key is not just to try harder. That's not the key. What you need is to see Christ in a new light. To be completely enamored with His work on your behalf. To see Him afresh in all of the love that He has bestowed upon you beginning in eternity past, but then in space and time as he went to the cross. What you need to do is go to the cross. What you need to do is to see Christ afresh and to sense His great love for you and the love of the Father that He's bestowed upon you and then in turn say, how can I not love God's people? How can I not love these people who Christ paid for their sins on the cross? Our Lord has demonstrated such true love There was nothing hypocritical about the love that He demonstrated to His people. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no ulterior motives here. We were sinners. We were rebels. And He died for us, completely alienated from Him. He's proven the sincerity of His love. John 15, greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. See, it's not just words. Jesus wasn't all about just words, right? This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. He did it. He did it on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago. And when he was on the cross paying for the sins of all of God's people because of really, first of all, love to the Father, but then love for all of his people that he was dying for, he said, it is finished. There's nothing more that you can do to contribute to your salvation. And that's good news. In a short time, we're going to enjoy the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We'll enjoy the bread. We'll enjoy the cup. We'll remember tangible things that we can taste and remember what He has accomplished on our behalf. Have you tasted of the sincere love of Christ for you? Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
Why can't we find joy when we're loving the brethren? Why can't we find joy and delight when we give of ourselves and we sacrifice little small things and and give and we're generous to others? Why can't we be like that? How we ought to be. Let me ask you, have you experienced the love of God? Maybe there's some here who have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He offers real love to you. Not the love of the world, not the love of Hollywood, not the love of of maybe everything that you've ever known, but this is the real deal. This is true agape love. If you'll repent of your sins and come and embrace Christ by faith, trusting in Him, trusting in His work, He will always love you. He'll never turn you away. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul ends Romans 8 with those grand truths. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height or debt, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing separate you have you been converted have you repented of your sins come to Jesus today all that the father gives me Jesus said shall come to me they'll come to me in due course the one that comes to me I will in no way cast out come to him today with that great assurance if you do not know him let's pray Father, thank you that we can look in this text very tall orders very humbled by this text. And Lord, we confess we woefully fall short in these exhortations. Lord, help us to understand and to see your great love for us first. And then in response that we would love others as we are called to. Enable us truly to love your church. For you have purchased the church with your own precious blood. Forgive us for our dullness Forgive us for our waywardness. Lord, we pray that you would quicken us for Christ's sake and for his glory. And Lord, for any here that do not know you, would you please stir their hearts? Would you open up their hearts? Lord, would you be pleased to draw them to yourself? And we'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.